Amen. First Corinthians chapter 12, if you will, look with me over at verse 9, verse 9, and then we will read a portion of verse 10. I'm going to try to make my way into verse 10 if possible. But again, verse 9, as Paul is picking up and enumerating on the nine gifts that are categorized in First Corinthians 12, here we are, to another, the gift of faith by the same spirit, to another, the gifts of healing by the same spirit. He is always reiterating, this is the work of the spirit. And then verse 10, to another, the working of miracles. And I want to stop there because obviously we'll pick up next time with the gifts of prophecy, discernment, gifts of tongues, and the interpretation thereof. That'll be a second set of categories to look at, starting with prophecy, perhaps next week. What we want to deal with is pick up where we left off on Tuesday around the concept of healing. We talked about healing as being something that has a goal or a destiny, and that is wholeness. Wholeness, the whole idea of healing is that there's something that is wounded, broken, diseased, that is not operating adequately or fully in the capacity for which it is designed. And healing is what is needed when something is deficient to that target. The word is wholeness. That is the destiny. I also uh, um, pressed the idea, and I'm going to do it again today, of a process or a protocol or a method. God uses means to bring these things about. And in a lot of ways, the means are going to become much more much more important for us to focus on than even the outcome or the destiny. And in many ways, the reason why that is, is because if healing is being made whole, coming into total completion, well, you and I know that that is an eschatological thing. That's a final day thing. That is a resolution of our life in Christ. That's something ultimately that will happen after a major catastrophic and also wondrous intervention of God in the person of Christ on the last day. That's kind of like the crescendo of his work. Uh, The Bible actually calls it him returning the second time unto salvation, Hebrews chapter 9, 27, um, coming for the ultimate saving of his people. And that's the kind of ultimate optic that the people of God live by. One day we will be totally and completely saved. And when I use that word saved, I'm using the word wholeness, right? And we've seen in patterns in the gospel where Jesus heals someone and he commends them for the second to the prior gift of, uh, in our text, the gift of um, of faith, where we saw over in verse nine, part A, to another faith by the same spirit. He says, your faith has made you what? Right. So what I have been building as an argument is that we have a set of cascading character, uh, um, gift categories that are given and they are not too infrequently disconnected. Most of the time you're going to find wherever healing is taking place, you're going to find faith there. Wherever healing is taking place, as we're about to move into it, you're going to find miracles there. And we're going to unpack that, spend some time with that. But also wherever faith is found, then the word of knowledge has to be there or the word of prophecy. So when you look at those gifts, it's probably better to hold them as a package because they actually reinforce each other. 
In fact, I really want to be a bit dogmatic about it because I don't think you're going to ever see a Christian healing or a Christian miracle where there is not a Christian presence and a Christian proclamation and a Christian prayer, which is the same as a Christian faith. Does that make some sense? Right. Now, there are a lot of things going on in the world, and we'll touch on that as we deal with healing that are not Christian. And so you will have all kinds of simians or signs showing up that are not Christian. And this is where you and I will have to keep proportionately our uh, interest and intrigue around miracles in a proper context so that we're not misled. But right now we're dealing with healing. And as we looked at several verses in the Old Testament, the one thing we want to remember, I think it's Exodus 15, 26. Can you pull that up? We want to start keeping these in memory that God under Yahweh or Jehovah says that he is the Lord that does what? Heals you. That's something you want to remember. Um, There's going to be Exodus 15, 27, maybe 16, 16, 27. Okay. You, you found it 15, 26. Okay. That's something we want to kind of remember uh, in our hearts, at least the last clause for I am the Lord that heals you. Now that proposition is also a promise and you'll find it repeated in the Psalms. So God is constantly saying to his people, I am the one that does what? Heals you. That's a promise. And now we just stated that healing is also a process, did we not? And I'm also emphasizing you want to be careful to make sure that you embrace the process because the mechanism or the methodology or the protocol is really where you and I will be kept from a number of assumptions or falsehoods or extremities. For instance, if we disregard the methodology as to how God brings about a healing, then you and I may be susceptible to the notion that every healing should be instantaneous. If you and I uh, fail to regard the fact that healing will have a real process with a real set of protocols or methodology that is designed as a process of restoration, restoration, if we fail to understand that, what we may be looking for, which a lot of communities do, who I I think we can call childish, that's what 1 Corinthians 14 lays it out as, children think like children, do they not? And children want outcomes, they don't want process, they don't want methodology, they don't want the patient arduous labor that actually will help them understand what goes into an outcome. And so our churches have been called by the Apostle Paul children. The church at Corinth is called a church of children, niepios. The Greek term means to be uh, immature, without sound knowledge, and therefore incapable of actually speaking for God. The, The idea of being a child for you and I would be that We should be motivated if we are children to grow so that as we mature and ground, this is going to be first Peter chapter two, verse one, as we mature and ground, we are not only capable of comprehending the uh, the deeper things of God to some extent. That's what these uh, these these studies are about a, a bit deeper, not super deep, but a bit deeper. And then be able to handle those studies without um, going off half cocked, thinking we know something 
when we really don't. So I'm, I'm pressing at home because in our Q&A, here are the questions that I'm going to be raising tonight. What is a miracle? That's one. Secondly, um, uh, what is the difference between a miracle and that which is supernatural? That's two. See, that's the second category that you probably haven't even thought about. And I'm going to help us make a distinction between the two. What's the difference between a miracle and something done merely at the supernatural level? I want to talk about that. Um, Thirdly, the question that we're going to raise is, are miracles being done today? I'm talking about in the Christian sense of miracles. Are miracles being done today? With these three questions here, we're going to have to be very sober. We're going to make sure we got to make sure that we don't lie on God. Is that not true? Right. And so our miracles done today. And then there are a few ancillary questions that come with that as well. So we'll be able to get into that. What I want to do is pick up again at the issue of healing and state that when we look at scripture carefully and we deal with the human anatomy, I'm going to use that. That would be a good way to put it. The human anatomy is a constituent of our mind, is constituent of our heart, is constituent of our emotions, is constituent of our physicality, and it's also constituent of what? Relationships. It's the sociological element um, of our walk with God. We are created in relationship. And the sociological factor comes into play in this regard. Where God is engaging in bringing about healing it's virtually never, and, and, and I may say this factually, the person in need of healing never heals themselves. So it's always going to be sociological, at least at a subject-object relationship dynamic. Does that make some sense? If I need healing, I have to look outside of myself for that healing. That brings me now into relationship with either God directly or God indirectly. If it brings me into relationship with God indirectly, now we're talking methodology. Now we're talking protocols, are we not? Now we're talking uh, uh, a process, a means, a mechanism by which my request for my need is met. And that becomes... Uh, all the more important. So we have looked at verses that dealt with lunatics. That's what you and I are by nature. Lunatics. My son is a lunatic, often thrown into the fire, then thrown into the water, and Jesus heals him. Do you guys remember? We closed out on that. And that should be a great encouragement in this regard, that sometimes it's not really about the healing of our body. And I would think that even, you know, given history up to this present time, There's more about the healing of the mind and more about the healing of the heart than it is the healing of our physical body. If we were to look at it on a proportional level, even today in our society, where we are today, there's much more need of a healing of the psyche and of the mind and of the emotions and therefore of the identity and of the purpose in people's lives. You would agree with that. And this is where also... um, Uh, Psychology has jumped on the bandwagon of becoming gods for people because they see the profound need at the psychological level. There is a need for physical healing. There's no doubt about it. You know that Jesus did that. And in fact, the way the gospel puts it in Matthew's gospel coming out of Isaiah is that he heals us of all our diseases. 
So there is a comprehensive healing that's expected for the people of God. Let me give you one Old Testament verse. Then I want to walk through just a few more New Testament verses before we go into the idea of miracles. Psalm 103, you've heard it before, but pick it up because this is a kind of crescendo psalm that encompasses the character of God as the Lord that heals you. Psalm 103, verse one, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within, with me, within me, bless his holy name. So that's a subject object conversation that the psalmist is having with who? Himself. And what that means is, is it's perfectly all right for you to go around the house talking to yourself. I'm just letting you know it's perfectly okay for you to talk to yourself. I, uh, I got two daughters that are explicitly good at this, and it gives me great comfort because I do the same thing. <laughs> so when I hear her in the kitchen talking and there's no one there, I'm not troubled. I fully understand what's going on. Verse two, bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his what? Right. And and certainly that's what we're dealing with right now. The gifts of the spirit are benefits to the people of God. And, And what the psalmist says is don't forget them. And that's what we're trying not to do. Bible study will help you not forget what God gives you for his glory and your good. Verse three, we're moving there. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Do you see it? So now the forgiveness of our iniquities is a predication for the promise of healing. And this goes back to the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge and then the gift of faith and now the blessing of healing. You can see that, can you not? In other words, God doesn't just heal you and I just to show off, just to demonstrate his power, just to make us feel good. He's certainly not a sugar daddy giving us miracle lollipops or healing lollipops. It is a token of his grand work of forgiveness in the person of Christ. And then also I want you to think about it in this regard as we drill down into it. If we're experiencing healing, it is a necessary facet of God having forgiven us. Because if he did not forgive us, there is no grounds for him to heal us. Since people that will die and perish in hell will be people who will never benefit from healing. Because hell means you're never healed. Does that make sense? And it would also mean that you were not forgiven. Does that make sense? So don't make a, don't, don't make a, a, a radical distinction between forgiveness and healing. They both go hand in hand. This is the grand miracle Jesus did in the gospel of Mark with the men who had brought a lame person and went on the top of the roof and opened up a hole in the roof because the Bible study was so packed, they couldn't get their dear brother whom they loved into the presence of Jesus. Jesus is preaching and then all of a sudden, you know, shingles are falling from the roof and he's wondering what's going on. And then a brother starts coming down the center of the roof on rags or ropes and drop right in front of Jesus. And then you had two conversations there, which is easier to do. To forgive sins or to heal this man. See, see what I'm saying? That was the conversation Jesus laid out. You should you should read that. And this is all about Jesus affirming his messiahship. What Jesus had said to the man who was in need of healing, though he did not request it. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, which one is greater, a healing or a sins forgiven? Forgive my sins. 
And then because everybody was all jacked up because Jesus forgave his sins, he says, let me show you, I have power to forgive his sins. Rise up and walk. And the man rises up and walks, right? So now we know that the one who says, I am the Lord that heals you is present. But he's there really to forgive you of your sins. And that that's a constituent coupling that we don't want to forget. Here's what I want you to see. He heals us of what? All thy diseases. All right. So now what is very germane when we get into the Q&A is how do we understand that promise? Isn't it? If he heals us of all our diseases, does he heal them right away? Does he heal them all at once? Does he heal them quickly? Does he heal them radically? Does, does he heal them in a way in which, you know, there is no conversation, no doubt, no fears? If you're an honest man or woman, you know, the answer to all those questions is no. He doesn't heal like that in a way in which it resolves the issue. Is God doing miracles today or is he healing today? And again, those are two categorically different things. But here I want us to now walk through some scriptures around that. You do believe in healing, right? Right. So like if you don't believe in healing, you should never pray because prayer is about healing. It's always about healing. Okay. so before we get into that, so I I just feel like I got to draw this home. Is is relationship important to God? Of course it is. It's uh, indispensable. It's indispensable. And this is eternal life that you may know the one true and living God and Jesus whom he has sent. That's a relationship. John 17, three, that you may know me. And so in that relationship, what is God doing? Telling you about himself, teaching you about himself. And then what else is he doing? Telling you to love your neighbor as yourself. That's sociological. Why is he telling you to love your neighbor as yourself? Because his methodology is to use you to heal them. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? Right. So it's important. I mean, on a sociological level, you're going to have some friends and relatives who got mind issues, heart issues, emotion issues, physical issues and more. I just gave you a few categories. And, and you and I then will have to know how in prayer to seek the right application of healing to the real need. And we believe that happens, don't we? Right. We could argue for it on a lot of levels. So I want to keep a category between miracles and supernatural to show you what I mean. OK, because healing in the supernatural is different than healing as a miracle. And I want you to see those categories when we get there. All right. So as we are working through the New Testament healing, Luke chapter 418, I'm going to run through about five verses. You've heard this one before. Luke 418 And the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus at his first sermon that he's preaching in his own home of Nazareth because he had anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He had sent me to heal the brokenhearted. There it is. What? Healing to preach deliverance to the captive and the recovering of the sight to the blind. That is another mechanism is recovering sight healing. Right. But we would also call recovering of sight a miracle. So this is what I'm doing is overlaying the correlation between healing and miracles where they show up. Okay, so you want to be able to identify those qualities of God's attributes, because according to verse 18 here, which comes out of Isaiah 61, verse one and two, what you have here are all three persons working in the Lord Jesus, who is Messiah, bringing about this kind of deliverance to set at liberty them that are bruised. Right. Forgiveness is setting at liberty. 
Forgiveness is releasing those who are in captivity to Satan. That's what forgiveness is. Y'all know that, right? It's called release. So now the next verse I want you to look at is uh, Luke chapter six, verse 18 and 19. Got four or five verses to walk through. This is concerning Jesus. All right. And, and, and uh, I guess I'll have to start here at, at around verse 15, Luke 6, 15, because there's a context. Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus and Simeon called Zelotes. These, these are the numbering of the apostles, uh, the disciples at that time. And Judas, the brother of James and Judas Iscariot, which also was traitor. Verse 17. And he came down with them and stood in the plain that is in an open place in the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people came out of Judea and from Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. This would be up in the regions of Palestine, the controversial stuff you and I are dealing with now. Of course, I'll unpack that more, but they're coming down as well, which came to hear him. There it is. Word, word of wisdom, word of knowledge and to be what healed of their diseases. So they weren't coming just for him to be some kind of incantationist or some kind of mystic in healing. They came to hear the gospel and they also expected the gospel to have the benefit of healing in it. So it happened and to be healed of their diseases. Verse 18. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were what? So their expectations were met. Their coming to Jesus was a kind of prayer. Would you agree? Their coming to Jesus was a kind. Isn't that what we do when we we pray? Don't we come to God? Right. So their physical journey into the presence of Jesus is a picture of our mental journey into the presence of God when we pray. Didn't we already learn on Tuesday that the uh, centurion servant told Jesus he didn't have to come to his house. All he needed to do is send the word. Right. And so since we know that all God has to do is send the word, we don't have to find Jesus physically to ask him to heal. We can call on him in prayer. Y'all see, that's a two way street. Right. It's a beautiful thing. Now, based upon that idea I just shared with you, faith is operating, isn't it? Faith is operating if I know I don't have to go to Jesus' house and I can't go there right now because his house is in glory. But he can hear me when I speak. Lord, heal my servant. Lord, heal my son. Heal my daughter. Lord, heal my spouse. Heal my friends. He will hear me, will he not? He may or may not answer my prayer. He may may or may not answer my prayer right away. He may or may not answer my prayer the way I want. This all gets into mechanism, methodology, all that, which is important to learn. Is that true? All right. But he does promise to hear prayer. So so we pray. Here's another one that we want to look at. Um, Luke chapter 22, verse 51. Luke twenty-two fifty-one, And Jesus answered and said, once again, suffer ye thus. And he touched his ear and he what? Healed him. Go back to verse 53, uh, verse 49. I want to kind of set a context for this one because I want you to catch it. You know now that Jesus is in need of healing somebody that had a, a deaf ear, right? A deafness, right? That's a deficiency. That's a sickness. That's a, an illness. Now, notice what it says. And when they were which were about him, saw saw what would follow. They said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? This is the account where Peter is going to afflict somebody. Right. Trying to defend Jesus. Verse 50. 
This is Peter, because they're getting ready to arrest our master. And one of them, we know it was Peter, do we not? Synoptic Gospels teach us that. Smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. You're talking about a real healing. Because his ear is gone now, right? And then we read verse 51. And Jesus answered and said, stop it. That's what he means by suffer ye thus far. Uh, really interesting. Okay, so I'm going to do a little parenthetical. This is why I love Jesus. This is why I love the Apostle Paul. Because if you don't have Jesus creating an equilibrium among people, we are all inclined to go as carnal as Peter. See, whenever we're in strife and contention, which is what's going on today with Israel and Palestine, it's all about cutting each other up. Did that make some sense? Right. And, and as you're going to learn on Sunday, you and I have the capacity to cut each other up with words. We have the capacity to bite each other and poison each other. Did that make some sense? Right. And so our society is full of that. It's full of backbiting and stabbing and cutting and slaughtering one another. And, 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 and the only hope we have is that there's a man among us who has the ability to reverse the damage. Did that come home? So here is our Lord looking at his disciples who have immediately collapsed into the carnality of, of narcissism and have thought the kingdom of God is taken by physical force. What Jesus said earlier, which is what we read in Revelation chapter 13, is the one that lives by the sword shall what? It's so true. It's so true. You don't think that Peter whacking off the ear of the high priest wouldn't set the high priest servants among the other ones to go to whacking off the ears of Christ's disciples. This is quid pro quo. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. That's under the law. Does that make sense? So Jesus intervened to stop the carnality of his servant and healed the man that wasn't even requesting a healing. This is also what I said about healing is not always simply for the believer. Because the servant of the high priest is a rebel against Christ. He came there to take Christ and Christ is healing him from the stupidity of his servants. We often need God to heal other people from the stupidity of us. It'll come home in a minute. It'll come home in a minute. Right. And he touched his ear and he healed him. I want you to recognize another mechanism. Jesus could have spoke the word. He didn't. He touched him. So this is a second category of mediation. The first category is his person. The second category is his methodology. Jesus touched a lot of people. He touched, and the implications are massive. Please understand this. I know it's Friday, but just understand this. Our whole medical culture comes into significant reality and relevance because healing comes through touch. Our whole medical industry is presupposition on the grounds that one human being can touch another human being and bring about healing. See what I'm getting at? Right. And you'll see that fully again on Sunday in what I call the paradox of medicine. And, uh, and so it is here. Beautiful, beautiful insight into to Jesus doing ministry. Now we'll go to the book of Acts a couple of times. Acts chapter uh, 943. Acts chapter 943, this is the apostle Peter talking, and it came to pass, let me see why I'm, uh, okay, I think I'll walk this through, it'll be there, yes. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a tanner, verse 40, 
Uh, okay, that'll work. Verse 10 through 5. Do I want to walk it all the way through? I'll see. Let me see. Do I want to walk that one all the way through? Okay. Um, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He's a Gentile, centurion of the band called the Italian band. Verse 2. A devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So now you have a person who is actually in need, but you also have him engaging in a mechanism. What is the mechanism that he's engaging in? Prayer. Right. And this person is now being brought into contact with Peter. Peter now is another mechanism, right? Because Jesus is on high in glory. The text will be about healing for sure. But what's happening is they can't go to Jesus, but they can go to Peter. And it's designed for them to go to Peter because Peter is going to commend Jesus to them. Right. And so this man is praying and God is answering his prayer. People have often argued what's Cornelius saved. We don't know and we don't need to know because it doesn't matter. God will hear the prayers of whomever he wants to hear the prayers of when his aim and ends is his own glory. Did that make sense, children of God? Yeah, it's so important to know that. Okay, so important to know that. Verse three, he saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming in unto him and saying unto Cornelius, not only is Cornelius praying, but an angel shows up at his house. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Right. Shows you something about the sovereignty of God. Verse four. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, your prayers and your alms are come up for a memorial before God. Powerful. His prayers are being heard and now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. This is how his prayers are going to be answered. I want you to hear it. He lodged with one Simon a Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell you what you ought to what? Right. So instrumentality, mediation and now instruction, injunction. My servant is going to tell you what you need to do. Verse seven. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants, a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. Verse eight. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's keep walking. Uh, and on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew unto nigh to the city, Peter went up upon the housetop. You guys know what's about to happen here. Peter is about to have a dream, right? So Cornelius has a visitation through his prayer. Peter is about to enter into a dream and begin to pray to God. So God God's dealing with two people on two different ends, are they not? All right, we're going to drop way down to like maybe verse 15. Verse 15, because this is, all right, and so uh, I'll go past that, maybe verse 18, because I want to get past Peter's account. And they called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, was lodged there. So they, uh, Cornelius sent some guys and got him. While Peter thought on this vision, the spirit said unto him, behold, three men seek thee. Verse 20, and arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So Peter now knows the assignment is from God. Then Peter went down to the, with the men to the house which were sent of him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherefore you are come? So Peter want to know. And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one of the one that fears God and of good report among all the nations, nation of the Jews was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear what words of thee. So now here's the purpose, Peter. You have to speak the word of wisdom. You have to speak the word of knowledge. 
Verse 23. Then called he them in and launched them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the morrow, after they entered into Caesarea, Cornelius waited for them and he called together his kinsmen and near friends. This is going to be a big gathering. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshiped him. That was wrong. Somehow Cornelius is hungry, isn't he? And he falls down before Peter. This is not good to do. Peter will correct this. Um, but Peter took him up saying, stand up. I myself also am a what? Right thing to do. Don't worship the instrument. This is what we talked about, right? You worship the source, not the instrument. Verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in, found many that were come together, were walking. And he said unto them, you know how that it's unlawful that a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, this is what I meant by knowing the distinction between a miracle and that which is supernatural, because something happened to Peter that was supernatural. What that was is that Peter was trapped by the Jewish Gentile uh, bifurcation. The Gentiles are dirty. The Jews are clean. He held that bias. He if, if he hadn't had that revelation of all that meat, clean and unclean being an injunction to eat thereof. And you notice Peter wrestled in that dream. Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean all my days. I think he was lying, but that's okay. Um, The point is, is he was holding his Judaism, was he not? But his Judaism was setting him up to discriminate against a Gentile. And that's what's going on today. When When you and I get trapped in our ethnocentricity, we fail to see others equal to ourselves. And so Peter now has radically experienced a transformation. I'm going to give it to you now. When someone is walking in a level of spiritual darkness, I don't care who they are. And that spiritual darkness is lifted so that they have clarity on what really is true. That's a supernatural work. You must know that is not the consequence of instrumentality is not the consequence of your wisdom or my wisdom is not the consequence of our skill in communicating. It's only the supernatural work of God to change a person's orientation so that they see things the way that God does. Did that make some sense? Very important. All right. Here it is. Verse twenty nine. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for. I asked, therefore, what intent have you sent for me? Now we're getting to what we need to do. Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house and behold, a man stood before me bright in his clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers heard your arms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Powerful, powerful. Send therefore to Joppa. And call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodged in the house of one Simon Tanner by the seaside, who, when he comes, shall speak unto you. Immediately, therefore, I sent you and you have well done that you are come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Now, all three persons are working at the administrative level. In the same way we talked about God, the father, the source, the Lord Jesus, the one give the assignment. The Holy Spirit is the one giving the gifts. Y'all remember that study? It's the opening of our study in the gifts. And so Peter is now prepared to do something of which if he were merely a Jew, he would refuse to do. 
but because he has transcended his Judaism. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's what? A new creature. So boundaries are removed now. And now he's wide open to actually emulate his master because didn't his master go about preaching the gospel and, and hanging with all kinds of people, uncouth, unprincipled people? Peter's doing the same thing now. Look at verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Great, Peter, because we still got that problem in our world. But in every nation, he that fears God works righteousness is accepted with him. Verse 36, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is what? He is Lord of only the Jews. You see what Peter is doing? I'm glad I allow, allow myself to walk this through. Let me show you something here. Peter is under guidance of the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about it. He's constrained by the Spirit, but he's also had the blessed visitation of a dream. And that dream was filled with revelation of New Testament principles that helped dislodge him from his set of assumptions as a Jew. It liberates him to be obedient to the Lord, which is giving him his assignment to go to Cornelius. Remember, it was Christ that told Peter in Matthew chapter 16, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is opened up by the preaching of the gospel when God is in it. Peter is about to be used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Cornelius is a big man in the Gentile culture. Huge. And Peter's about to be used uh, to this end. But think about what it took. It took Peter having a dream and revelation and God speaking explicitly to him about letting go the kosher laws of Judaism, which were really catechisms and types and patterns of grander realities around the fact that all men and women everywhere will come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And Peter, this is Peter's interpretation of that dream. Notice again, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel. What word? The person of Christ. Preaching peace by Jesus. He is Lord of all. Peter's persuaded now, is he not? Yes, he is. <clears throat> Verse 37, we're getting there. The word I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism of John, verse 38, how that God, here it is, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with what? We're getting ready to come up on that. We're getting ready to come up on that. Who went about doing good and what? There it is. Healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with them. That's our paradigm right there. That's our model. That's what we're called to right there. That's our model. So I just wanted to start there because we're in the middle of the book. The, the, the book of Acts is about to transition from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul. OK, Paul's going to do some outstanding work, but we're going to see that under miracles. So let's go to one last portion in the book of Acts. This will be Acts 28, 27, where Paul is in his hired home as a slave of Rome waiting to. Uh, go to court for the gospel. This is what Paul says to his Jewish brethren before he closes out dealing with them. For the heart of this people was waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes have they closed lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should what? 
Now, who, who said that previous to Paul? Jesus in Matthew 13. We talked about that on Tuesday, didn't we? Now here comes the same words coming up in the same context concerning the same people. And who are they? The Jewish people who are doing what? Rejecting the gospel. And Paul is explaining to them, listen, if you look all around you. He's talking to the Jewish rulers at his home. You see all kind of Gentiles coming to Christ. Now, the reason you're not coming is because of what Isaiah said. And this is where the Apostle Paul stops dealing with the Jews, at largely speaking, because, of course, the other apostles deal with them. But I want you to ask the question, what category is healing being addressed here in, in, in this verse? That, he should, that they should be converted and that God should heal them. Is it physical healing? No. Is it emotional healing? No. Is it heart healing? Is it mind healing? Is it relationship healing? Yes, it is. And therefore, we would call it spiritual healing, right? Because they were completely blinded to who they are or should be in the person of Christ. And therefore, were useless in terms of God being able to bring them into what he had stated propositionally that the Jews salvation is of the Jews. That's the way Jesus put it in John four, right? Salvation is of the Jews and they're, they're missing out on it because they're not behaving like true Jews. Good. That's the way the book of Acts closes out. Now let's deal with miracles, miracles, miracles. Um, the first time this term is going to be used is in the gospel of Matthew chapter six. Nope. Do me a favor. Go back to our text. I want to first Corinthians chapter 10. I want to do a few things just introductorily on it. I'm not going to fully expand it. We're going to just talk for a few minutes. First Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verse uh, verse 10 and then verse 28 and verse 30. Um, something I, I marked before and I just want to mark it now. We're in first uh, Corinthians chapter 10, ver, uh, chapter 12, rather verse 10. Notice what it says and to a I'm sorry, verse nine to another faith by the same spirit and to another the gift of what? The gifts of healing, plural, the gifts of healing by the same spirit. Oh, yes. Verse 10, part A to another, the working of what? Right. So this this is something Paul is enumerating. And I think it's, it's extremely uh, important to capture. So you have the gifts, plural of healing, and then you have the workings of miracles. You guys see that those two words are frequently tied together because the whole purpose of miracles is to manifest, to manifest a mighty work. The whole purpose of miracles is to manifest a mighty work. Remember, we're talking about verse seven in our text. The aim of verse seven is the manifestation of the spirit, right? The manifestation of the spirit. So again, when I state that miracles are in view, we are talking about a manifestation or a, the language is actually a mighty working, a mighty working, okay? A mighty working and that mighty working is actually the word there for um, energon or energy or energamata, the way it is actually in that construction, um, Mighty, a mighty working in verse 10 to another, the working of miracles. Okay, the energy or energon, the 
efficacy of miracles. And I want to get into that, too, because that's extremely powerful. Those words are very frequently coupled together. Mighty works. Mighty works. Mighty works are done. Mighty works that are also called miracles. I'm emphasizing that now. Mighty works are done that are also called miracles. So now we, we, we got this kind of uh, nomenclature around it. Let's look at the verses for a moment. I'm going to just kind of seed it out, tease it out for you. Over in verse 28, the term is used again. And God has set forth some in the church, first apostles, secondarily um, prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, what? After that, miracles, then gifts of healing. He turned it around in this one. Then helps and governments and diversities of what? Right. The order is almost the same. He turns healings around with miracles, but he does lay them forth, lay them forth. And I want you to know if we're dealing with arguments, notice what it says. God has set forth some in the church. What does he do now? He gives us the offices of leadership. What did God set in the church? Apostles and then uh, secondarily prophets and thirdly teachers. These are your universal and your local gifts. In other words, hierarchically, the church should be known for apostolic teaching that is set forth by those who are called to expound God's word. They are called prophets and teachers. In our local churches, apostolic teaching is what God, Christ gave the apostles and the apostles give to us. That's why they're first in the list. Okay, prophets and then teachers are operating with that fixed revelatory deposit. That's what they're doing. And then subsequent to that, going back to verse 8, 28, please. And then subsequent to that, the gift of the apostles and then prophets and then teachers. After that, miracles and healings and governments and helps and diversity of tongues. Y'all got that? In other words, really the way we can put this is a an anthem of sound doctrine must be the framework of the local church. And that anthem of sound doctrine is a deposit from Christ to his apostles and from his apostles to the leadership in his church, which are called gifts. And by that anthem of theology that we call the gospel proper, the spirit of God works through that, the different gifts that we're talking about now. It's really important for you to keep that in mind. Really important. Okay. And I, I love this, that he, what he's doing. So now uh, for five minutes, I just want to walk through some verses and we'll pick this up probably more or so as we go on Tuesday. Again, Matthew chapter six, we're going to walk through these. Matthew chapter six, verse 13. Notice what it says in Matthew six thirteen. This is a prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples. Y'all know it, right? Uh, Y'all know the prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I love the last verse in the prayer. And I want you to actually tell me where the word miracle is. Okay. Because it's in this verse. Okay. So, you know, I'm making you think. I want you to think. So he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, literally in the Greek grammar, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Where is the word miracles? There it is. That's right. 
So I want you to tie miracle with power right now because I want to explain it to you at the fundamental level. Okay, so I was telling you that what we're talking about are mighty works. What a miracle has to constitute is a mighty work. Okay, I want you to I want you to think that through. I want you to think it through. All right, good. Verse uh, verse uh, chapter seven, verse 22, chapter seven, verse 22, Matthew seven twenty-two. You will have heard this, not second Samuel, Matthew seven twenty-two. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We just saw that, right? Apostles, prophets, right? So you got people speaking and declaring God's word. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name, have cast out devils and in your name done what? Wonder, many wonderful works. Where's our word miracle? Works. You got it. Wonderful works. Wonderful works that bring about wonder. That's what I'm emphasizing right now. It's important for you to get, it will show up even more clearly down the line. Chapter 11, verse 20, Matthew uh, 11, verse 20, Matthew 11, verse 20. Here it is. Um, Yes. Uh, Then he began to upbraid the cities. These are Tyre and Sidon and other cities at which he preached. Then he began to correct, upbraid, admonish the cities wherein most of his what? Mighty works, mighty miracles were done because they did what? They repented not. Now, there's something about the verses I'm sharing with you that have something in common. And that is what I had told you earlier in our study is that miracles don't automatically save anyone. So if you were to look at the previous verses again, Jesus is talking about miracles, but no one's being saved. So it's important for you to know that if you're asking for a miracle, it's not the same as asking to be saved. It's important for you to know that. So here he begins to upbraid them wherein most of his mighty works were done because they did not what? They didn't repent. The miracles didn't bring them to a need of Jesus as their savior. So to have a miracle done is not equivalent to actually being saved. It's important for you to know. I I just want you to capture that. Now, now God would be glorified if something, if a mighty work is done, a miracle is done, a manifestation is done. God will be glorified because God will have shown up. But it doesn't mean that him showing up and giving an epiphany. All right. That's a funeral, an epiphany, a manifestation of his mighty power does not mean that the people who saw it are going to acknowledge God in the crown rights of his saviorhood. It's important for you to to know that as Christians, because again, the childish church will assume that miracles will bring people to salvation and it never necessarily does. It's important for you to know that. This is why I'm making a distinction between miracles and what? Miracles and what? Somebody say it. Because the rest of them aren't paying no attention. Exactly. That's right. I'm making a big difference. I'm making a big difference. Miracles you can see. The supernatural you can't see immediately. Did I make some sense right there? I'll drill it home in a minute, but I just want to make sure you you get this. Miracles often are simply to verify and validate God's nature, God's purpose. 
All right, and then we'll, we can talk about what that means here in a minute. I've only got a few more minutes in that regard, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that you guys have more, more questions, because you should. Notice what it says in uh, Matthew chapter um, 13. Matthew chapter 13, we can look at, the, okay, so we're in Matthew eleven twenty. Look at verse 23, Matthew eleven twenty three. It should come up again. Yes, here it is. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, you shall be brought down to hell. That's, a, that's, a, that's an indictment. For if the mighty works, if the miracles which have been done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Here's what we extract from this admonition. Miracles do not automatically save anyone. All right. So the next thing that I want us to look at is uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. Matthew 13, 58. And these are all events that are directly connected to Jesus. Matthew 13, 58. Now watch this. Now start back at verse 56. If, yeah, Matthew 13, 56. This is Jesus in his own hometown and they are actually criticizing him. Let me start at verse 54. They're criticizing Jesus. It's not something that I want to dwell deeply on, but this is a conditional prescription here. And when he was coming to his own country, that is Galilee, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, whence has this man wisdom? There it is again, the word of wisdom, right? Whence has this man wisdom and these mighty what? There it is. This is what I meant earlier, that you're not going to see the miracles or the healings done apart from the propositional truth claims of the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge. It's going to be there because God is actually stacking upon his propositional witness a testimony of his power. He's stacking his propositional claims with a testimony of power. Did that make some sense, you guys? So here comes someone I'll tell you the Lord is on his throne. Let all the earth bow before him. Right. Jesus is Lord of all. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. All right. Just propositions. Right. Faith comes by hearing, et cetera, et cetera. You must be born again. Right. Yield to Christ. He's the only savior of the world. So you're hearing a prophetic expression of the uh, crown rights of Jesus. And then God will do something miraculous to affirm the authority of Christ. Right. Doesn't mean those people are going to bow the knee to Christ. These folks didn't. And when he was coming to his own country, he did that. And they asked the question, you know, who is this guy? His words are powerful and he's doing miracles. Verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Do you guys see what's getting ready to happen here? This is called mental rationalization. This is called separating the uh, inarguable, incontrovertible miracle and manifestation from the person that is the instrument of it. So like now what you're doing is creating a cognitive dissonance in your brain. You see what you see. You heard what you heard, but you don't want to make the application or the inference that what you see and what you heard means that the person that was doing that is some kind of special person. You're going to split the screen, move him over here, move that over there. And now you're going to rationalize the person all by yourself from a level of familiarity that narrows down his identity to something that you can scrutinize. That makes sense, right? Very important. Many more. Many more things could be said to that. Is this not is not his mother called Mary? We know Mary. 
and his brethren. We know them, James and Josie and Simon and Judas. Don't we know all this? Don't he live down the street to the left over there on, on Main Street in Nazareth? We know him. That's just Jesus. That's all that is. Right. Verse 56. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? I love this. They are really set back by this manifestation, aren't they? They're really taken in. They're really gripped, but they're gripped in such a way that they are wrestling with and refuting the logical inference that comes with it. And here it is in verse 56, verse 57. And they were offended in him. See it? They were offended in him. This is amazing. So now some insight is getting ready to come here. I I shouldn't unpack it really fully, but really what this is all about is forbidding your prejudice to be overcome. Forbidding your prejudice to be overcome. Right. You got a set of presuppositions. You got a set of assumptions. Your set of assumptions is Jesus can't be anything other than what we said he is. It doesn't matter if he opened up the ground and closed it back up. It doesn't matter if he says, son, be blinded, be darkened for an hour. He could do all kind of stuff to attest to his deity and they're not going to accept his claims. This is called forbidding the evidence to speak for itself. This here is what we call a normalcy bias. This is how you maintain your position even in contradistinction to the evidence at hand. You and I can do that. Do you know that? We can do that. And the term is going to come up very succinctly here. Verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their what? So what I just described in all of that mental gymnastics is intentional working of unbelief. Did that make some sense? So I want you to get this now. It's very important at the logic level because you and I will be challenged at the logic level, at the rationale level, at the... um, At the testimonial level, if what we are seeing or what we are hearing is challenging something about us. If it is challenging our foundation, I could just take you to a bunch of different categories, but the the latest is what we went through with this crazy COVID thing. And a lot of people were operating under assumptions like we can trust our government. And, 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 and this is sad, but it's still true. And, you know, you were guilty of it, too. So all of us are guilty at some level of the assumption that at some level I can I can prove it to you. I, and I'm not going to do that. But there are areas in which unless God shows you you're walking in a set of assumptions, you won't know you will are. You're just enjoying the benefits of a relationship of which you are not cognizant that you are assuming certain things that are not true. And then when there's a contradiction, when there's a break in the framing, when there is a a challenge on your ideas, now you are actually waffling to try to find a foundation for your feet. Have you ever felt that experience of going, whoa, something's wrong here and I need stability. And if I have to go out and rationalize it against the evidence, that's what I'm going to do. Shore up my position so I can stand, right? Rather than be corrected. Rather than be corrected. And see, if you read read Malachi, the second chapter, that's what Jesus is doing. 
the messenger of the covenant shall come and he's going to purge the sons of Levi. And that's what he was doing, purging them of their set of assumptions. And you and I go through that too. And it has to happen from time to time with us because we'll get settled into structures and into comfort zones and we'll think we're safe and we're not safe at all. And God has to rattle that. This happens with me a lot with new people that come into grace who think they know the gospel and they don't. And then when they start listening to me and I begin begin to systematically unpack the doctrines of grace and demonstrate that they have a really flawed view of their human nature. And then we begin to demonstrate that, no, you don't play a part in your salvation. That shakes you up. Because, whoa, what do you mean I don't play a part in my salvation? I accepted Jesus into my life. And then we begin to demonstrate, no, you didn't choose him. He chose you. You're disrupted. And then when we talk about, you know, freedom to choose the good or choose the evil, we tell you, no, that's philosophical. That's not biblical. You who are used to doing evil, you cannot do good until God gives you grace. Paul was the one who affirmed that in Romans chapter seven, right? The good that I would, I am not doing. The evil that I don't want to do, I'm compelled to do. He's explaining it. And then we go, oh, another honest brother in the house. So now why is it that I believe on the Lord Jesus? The Bible says it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now all of a sudden you're coming to understand your salvation is a gift. That's one of the biggest battles in church history. It's called a man-centered doctrine versus a God-centered, Christ-exalting doctrine. And it crushes people when you have to explain it. And then I can go down a whole litany of things. So many errors in our churches that when you show them biblically, no, women can't be pastors. That crushes them. It crushes them. Now, you guys hearing what I'm saying and so many different things and you're like, whoa, what is this? What this is, is that we were operating out of assumptions about what was true until God in his mercy brought these things to us. And these become a challenge as to whether or not you're going to submit to Christ. The reason they killed Jesus is because he told them you are of your father, the devil. That was a big one. John chapter eight, verse 44. That was not cool. That was not cool. Now, Judas, uh, now uh, Nicodemus, he said, yeah, I agree with you. And what Jesus said in John chapter 10, all that hear my voice agree with me. So so the gospel is a serious battle and serious warfare. And and when God shows up, he not only shows up with propositional truth claims that offend people, but he also shows up with miracles that offend people. Because, see, people want miracles, but they want them their way and they want them through whom they want them. Um, And so, so far, what we've come to understand is miracles haven't been that helpful for the Jews, have they? Now, we know we're going to walk through the gospel and Jesus is going to heal the blind. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to heal the lame. Is he not? Please, but hear me now as I shut it down and open the floor for some questions. The vast majority of the people that Jesus is going to heal, the elite despise. They're called the deplorables. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. They're the deplorables. And, 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 and so Paul made it very plain in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
First uh, Corinthians chapter one, verse 26. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. The things that are not to bring to not the things that are. And, 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 and in terms of the called there, you and I are the called. We are the ecclesia and we're called nothing. We're called weak things there. Y'all got that? We're called the despised things there. Right. So election is not a doctrine that should turn you into some arrogant, pompous, religious person. It should humble you because the only reason that you actually are able to acknowledge your election is because God granted you the capacity to agree with him. Does that make some sense? Right. Right. For you see your calling, brother, and how that not many wise men after the flesh. That's me. Not many mighty men. That's not me. That's me. Not many noble are called. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Verse 28. And base things of the world and things that are despised. God has chosen, yea, the things which are not to bring to not the things that are. Verse 29. All these are texts in the Old Testament, by the way, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Here is your litmus test as to whether or not your gospel is right. If you frame a gospel that gives you the glory in part or in whole is a false gospel. Did that make some sense? If you frame your gospel to where it gives you some glory, even if it's one percent, you have a false gospel. No flesh shall glory in his sight. All right. So we're going to stop right here. I need somebody running for uh, for some Q&A for a little bit. And then we're going to pick up our study um, uh, next time. Um, I hope you guys are ready, because otherwise I'm going to send you home. <clears throat> questions, questions, there's a good one right there. Go ahead on, sis, you can, you can start. There we go. Now, that's the mic you're going to be see, speak singing on tomorrow, so don't be breaking that mic. <laughs> you had mentioned you were going to speak a little bit more about the conflict that's happening in the Middle East. Would you mind doing that, please? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, let me do that toward the end. All right, thank you. Lisa. Again, I can totally relate. So um, what's, what's interesting with this whole study is how God works, the Holy Spirit. So in a group that I'm with, uh, in, we've been talking about the feminism. Well, Leah's been. And I, I, you saw where I've come from. I mean, I thought I was a man. You know, I wanted to have big muscles like a man. I wanted to walk around like a man. I wanted to swagger, you know. How'd that work for you? Um, well, it worked until it didn't. <laughs> so um, until, you know, God opened my eyes. And I, I, I was totally broken. Like, everything got broke. I mean, when we had the therapy with you, with my husband, and, you know, I was just sitting there. And the Holy Spirit just, he just, like, I was like I was on a sedative. I and I was sitting here listening to what you were saying, and I was just like, like, I, I got it. I mean, I totally got it, and I just saw the whole past. Mm-hmm. And what's happening right now is this whole feminism, this women's living thing, is like, I used to hold that up as like, you know, yay, this is awesome, you know. Um, we get to vote, we get to do all this thing. Like, the suffragettes were like my, you know, idols. And, and what's happening is... 
I, I totally get it. I mean, I get it so much that it's, it's kind of weird. And then all of a sudden, Leah sent something out. And all of a sudden, like, the hair on the back of my neck went out. And so I saw my blind spot. And so what I have a question is, so um, I think it's a miracle that God is bringing me where I am right now. And um, with what he's, I'm, my mind is getting healed. But I'm able to think again. I'm able to not have so many cravings and wanting to be anesthetized in some way in, in money or drugs, alcohol, sex. I mean, you name it. Like, you know, I, like, it was all good. Mm-hmm. And so the, I have, I, so the supernatural, so, um, so I feel like it's at the same time, like my, and then, oh, during this time, too, is I, my body broke. My body totally broke, like everything. I mean, I got junk all over my body. I can't walk. I'm in so much pain. And before, I was like in a, an elite athlete. Mm-hmm. And um, now I'm broken, and I was just trying. I went to everything, like stem cells, everything under the sun. I was doing everything in the way that a man could do it. And now I'm just like talking to God about it and and having that lead the way and then using other, having other people come and talk to me about things. Um, so a combination of miracles and supernatural, like I don't want to get like, like my leg. I have, I'm kind of got confused about like my legs not healing, but I really don't care now. It's not healing. Like I'm like, it's okay, but I'm not like I'm not like liking the pain, but I want my mind to heal more than my body. So I'm I'm just and then the whole thing with it's more important for me to understand uh, my role as a, a biblical woman, a biblical wife, and a biblical mother. But I kind of feel like I can't do everything at the same time. So okay, oh, done. I know I can't do anything. I got to okay. have to because of time's sake. Because you went around a bush three times, and, and that's okay. I got you. It was a big tree. It wasn't a bush. It was a big tree. <laughs> with a very large trunk. So, so, so what she's dealing with is healing. So what I often want us to do is keep help get our categories right. And, and when you're a new student, it, you, can, you can be all over the place as a student. Don't have your thoughts organized right, and so your questions won't come out that clear. Thank you for your patience, because I'm always thinking about everybody else, too. So if I don't hear it coming out clear, I'm going to stop you out of love. So I don't, I don't care what people think. The point is, is that it has to be reduced in a concise way. You're dealing with healing. So we're not so much talking about miracles and supernatural. That's a new set of themes you have to take your time and, and work with. Let's go back to healing. Okay, because all of us are in a process of healing. That's what Sotir is about. That's what salvation is about. Am I making some sense? All right. So the categories in which you are being healed is in your mind. Didn't we just talk about that? That makes sense, right? Uh, Elisa's mind is being healed. Right. That, that's the area that's and, and, and what's showing up now in that kind of mind healing now is a desire to be obedient. Does that make some sense, Elisa? Right. Good. So now we, we will put this under the category of supernatural. Didn't I just say that, you guys? 
Right. It's important for you to get that. And so stay right there. Don't try to talk about miracles and supernatural and all that right now. OK, because we still got to work that through. I just started with you guys on the miracle thing. Right. What I said about the difference between the supernatural and the miracle is that supernatural things are things that are being done in a dimension that is not obvious or physical. So supernatural activity doesn't come with explicit evidence of itself. A miracle, a mighty working, like you said, healing the leg, we're going to have visible empirical evidence if that were the case. That's like a miracle, okay? That's Jesus raising the dead, okay? That's, that's Jesus opening the eyes of the blind. That's, that's a miracle, okay? That's Jesus he- healing a withered arm. Does that make sense? Those are explicit. And the other thing about a miracle, what a miracle is, is the event of God's mighty working that accelerates a process that could have taken place otherwise, but it would have been a long period of a normal healing process. Did that make some sense? Right. So healing is still the terminus. The end game is healing. But where it is not miraculous, it's going to happen just gradual and progressive because that's the way God works in your life and mine. You and I are constantly going through a process of healing in our physical body. Either we're healing or we're deteriorating. Okay. So so if God is healing us, the Lord that is healing us, he will heal us first in our mind because it may be something in our psyche and our thinking and our patterns of life that need to be changed so that our obedience can lead to us taking care of our physicality in a way that we can now augment and enhance our healing. Did that come home? Right. If my head is jacked up, then my whole emotional makeup is going to be disoriented. Then I'm going to be distracted and I'm going to be engaging in things that are not good for me physiologically or psychologically. When I get my head corrected, then I may get my obedience corrected. If I get my obedience corrected, then I can pour into myself or others into me at the physical level that will now start to restore the healing process. That is a supernatural work. This is why largely our salvation is a salvation of our mind and heart first at the supernatural level. Am I making some sense, you guys? Right. And and, and just as a word, and then we'll go on, the, the idea of the healing process will, upon your regeneration, the very word regeneration, I'm going to talk about this on Sunday. I'm talking about hygiene. I'm talking about medicine. I'm talking about regeneration. All of these are components in the whole medical industry, right? How do we stimulate our body to regenerate as a healing process? There's all kinds of mechanisms. We can halt that. You guys know that. You can be on a good track of healing and then go stupid again. All right. So I'm just I'm just saying right now, the area in which you are doing a really good job, God is doing a really good job with you is in your mind because it's allowing you to think clearly. You're grasping big pictures and you're making right choices at the micro level, at the macro level. You're getting big pictures of what's going on in our world at the micro level. You're learning how to be obedient in conformity to that revelation. Am I making sense, you guys? That's called conversion. We change our behavior, but it is a part of a protocol. It's long. All right, good. Who has the, who has the mic? Let me start over here, Miss Jackie. 
Okay. Um, hi, Pastor. Um, bear with me because, okay, so in Genesis, I was um, reading in Genesis when God told Adam to dress the earth and also after the sin, well, before this, the fall, he told him to, you know, they could eat of all the trees except for the tree of good and evil. And um, also in Revelations, there's a tree. And also in Revelations, towards the end, um, the tree of um, that heals the nations by eating of the leaves. And, um, and now I'm going to go back to Hebrews, so help me, you know, if when Hebrews, um, through faith, um, everything is created by the unseen world. Um, yep. But we can't have healing without conversion. And I rem- on Tuesday night, you also mentioned um, that God... It was almost like you were saying God gave us instruction. What did he tell us? He, he gave us an order. He's, um, when we were reading earlier, um, I think it was Luke, about the power which comes from God, right? And so when he was, te- I, I just was thinking that when he told Adam to, you know, take care of the earth, chill the earth, and dress it, that he also, God is also our covering. He covers, the Lord Jesus covers us through his blood. But it's a process of healing in that, and that it's not by our works, which a miracle is a work, but like you were saying earlier, it can't. It may not necessarily lead someone to salvation. And then, um, because man oftentimes take credit for, you know, like you said, that 1% of glory. They take, you know, they take, you know, stealing God's glory a little bit in that. And I, I'm believing that the work... It's, it's the super, I don't want to say supernatural, because you said don't get into that, but it is the invisible, unseen world um, manifested in Jesus Christ that brings a healing, and it's a constant healing for us. Now, I don't know, you can start it out better. Mm-hmm. I am going to sort it out. Thank you did you. pretty good. So she, this is interesting what's going on here. So this is called excogitation. Learn it. Just learn it. So like when you have relationships with people, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, we were dealing with the sociological factor of healing, right? So two people come together in conversation. And, and if you really care about that person, you listen to them. And you listen because you want to actually be able to respond in a way that is accurate and helpful. Does that make sense? Otherwise, there's no reason for you to have a relationship with anyone if all you want to do is talk. 
so the challenge of relationships is that it has to be a reciprocal thing. So like, this is what we're doing now in this study. We open up the floor to have conversations. So my sister Jackie, I'm learning about her. She has a lot of big frames too. She likes to put a frame here, put a frame there, put a frame there, put a frame there. That, I, that's very commendable because some people don't even know how to frame things. She has to actually learn how to order her frames, put her frames in order. And once she's able to put her frames in order, she'll be able to speak more succinctly. Did that make some sense? So often what's happening when we're speaking, you know, I want to say something, is that we have not thought it through. So it's learning how to think it through, learning how to write down your thoughts, learning how to organize your thoughts in your head and, 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 and to be able to self-reflect and self-critique. Did I get that point? Did I get point number two? Did I get point number three? Am I clear on that? Um, so this is how Jackie processes. But the way she closed out was very good because what she was trying to do is categorize the difference between a miracle and the supernatural. And this is important because she was listening to me. I was telling her that the miracles are going to be largely manifestations of a powerful working, whereas the supernatural is going to be the hidden work that's done largely. She totally caught that. And that's absolutely right. The vast majority of what God is doing is at the supernatural level. Every now and then he breaks into our physical dimension with a miraculous manifestation because the seeds of healing are already within the creation. So when she goes back to the Genesis narrative, she's absolutely right. Very good. And then she went to the end of the book where we've talked about the tree of uh, life now being elaborated out because in Genesis 2, it's simply called the tree of life. In Genesis and Revelation 22, it's called the tree of healing with 12 kinds of fruits for the nations. And so she has fully grasped the metaphor of healing. Did y'all get that? She fully grasped it and she made sure she maintained a category between the healing and the supernatural and the miraculous, which was excellent. So I want you to know that your thinking is well, organizing it so that it comes out more coherently is something we just have to work on. All right. Who else has the mic? Leah. Very good, Jackie. Very good. I just have a comment about your last um, proposition from Tuesday when you said, I'd rather listen to a doctor that is the un, unsaved doctor that has integrity versus uh, a Christian doctor that does, that's a mess. And that's an that's a argument I've had with a ton of people for a while. And, I, you know, you clarified it for me because I've, you know, I've had private conversations with people and bottom line is, is, like, is I realise that Okay, because I'm on a Marxism and a feminist bent. The Marxism has taught us to listen to experts. And once they get us caught on an expert, then we're just going to, you know, believe on them hook, line, and centre. Whereas the Bible never taught that. Even Jesus said, I can even raise these stones to um, give me glory. And what you're doing is you're following the finger of the Lord. So the finger of the Lord or the Holy Spirit can land on anybody because there's nothing different between the believer and unbeliever but the grace of God. So I say that to say, like, when you said that on Tuesday and you left it like that, I thought to myself, 
you've, you've left a lot of people in suspense. And um, I have a couple of I have a couple of group chats that I was just I just regurgitated and you know and, and brought up their proposition again and told and you know and just wrote down my thoughts on it because because that's what see where the the Bible the, the Bible pre, um, teaches that we have to follow the finger of God and it can be with anybody you know but generally yes it's with His people but every now and then it could be you know it could be a king. Uh, Cyrus or somebody, you know. If you follow the scriptures carefully, you'll see that he frequently is using the Gentiles. Yes. Right, and that sets for us, that sets for us a principle. That's that's all that was. You know, you know, you've been around me long enough. I don't care how, you know, I'm crashing your frames if you are making frames that are bigoted and um, not representing who God is. The assumption that a person is a Christian and therefore is competent to work on you is nowhere justified in the scriptures. Did you hear that? Yeah. And, and, and our experience teaches us that uh, largely if it has Christian in front of it in terms of business, run from it. Mm-hmm. Let me help you, just in case you're offended. Good, be offended. What we're getting ready to find out is how much of a sham Christianity has been for the last 250 years in America. Because it's part of this beastly system trying to set up the one world government as you and I speak. There's so much phoniness to it, and American Christians are going to wake up with a rude awakening shortly. And so it's important for you and I to know I taught this church this 20, 20 something years ago. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the gospel versus religion. Mm-hmm. Can you see it? It's the gospel versus religion. Religion is constantly coming after Christ, and he's defending himself impeccably. And that contradistinction needs to be understood. That, that contradistinction needs to be understood. And so that, that's the point. Go on. And there's another thing that you do, like you talk about a point over and over again, many different ways, and then you'll say something that just kind of like summarize all of these points. So the lesson that you've been giving lately on Cora, Datham and Abaro, Miriam and um, Aaron. Aaron against Moses, basically you said, you said it succinctly when you said, we've got to frame our experience, our theology we got to use our theology to frame our experiences versus our experience framing our theology. And the Absolutely. thing that happens is that we come to church every day and you don't know it, but you come with a false idol. And then what you're trying to do is get the real God to capitulate to your false idol. That's why you argue with the, with the, with the, with the preacher. Maybe there's some arguments that are valid, but, you know, most of the time oh, no, that's no, what you're no, doing. No, 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 it's really true. It's, yeah. it's really true that, that you can argue with me, but you have to know why you're doing it. Yeah. So, like, everybody is going to probably be arguing with me in their mind. You should. If I'm saying things that are alien to you, you should be arguing. L- let me help you. Like, don't give up your position right away. Just because you don't agree with me. Don't give your position up. I'm not asking you to agree with me. You never hear me say agree with me. But 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 if you are if you are struggling with something, I say, do what the book says. Go check it out. That's what you do. Prove everything. 
Don't reduce it to a horizontal conflict between me and you. That's completely futile. Right. And, and, and you'll discover whether or not you have the capacity to reason well. Keep your position if you think you have a solid position. I'm, I'm saying this to everybody. I say this to my kids. Keep your position. Um, if your position is wrong, I'm praying that God will show you, show it to you. He may or may not, depending on what kind of person you are. If you are very hard headed and, 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 and very narrow and very rigid, cantankerous, you're going to suffer a lot in the flesh from from not being able to be corrected. And it's wisdom when you can start catching yourself. Going, ah, nope, I'm responding wrong to that. Ah, not good. Why am I uncomfortable with what he just said? See what I'm getting at? Right. Go back and examine it, deconstruct it or take another humble route. If you if you if you really want to maintain the sociological uh, uh, unanimity, like a lot of people do, they'll email. Can you explain why you said that, Pastor? I'm like, thank you for doing that. Can you explain why you said that? Absolutely. I'll go as far and wide as you want me to, to help you understand my position, because I'm not necessarily saying your position is wrong. You're hearing that in your own head. My position might be right and yours might be right. Two different things are not necessarily contradictory. Didn't I teach you guys that? Right. And so it's, it's extremely important for us to know that we should hold our position Unless God is telling us we need to re-examine that position. So that's very important. All right. Who else had the mic? Somebody else had the mic. Uh, If if somebody has the mic, they need to, because otherwise I'm just going to make an observation about where we are and shut it down. Can I I ask a question? Okay. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask about um, repentance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess the question is really, if it falls under the category of supernatural? Yes. Okay. And right. how so? That's it. Right. And think about what I just stated right there about the supernatural. Obviously, we're going to have two more studies because we haven't got into the miracle in, in, in its fall. Just do. So make the, make the distinction between the supernatural and the miraculous and understand that the supernatural is going to have to do with everything that comports with the totality of your salvation that we have subscribed under healing. You would agree with that, right? Like, so my salvation in total is a, is a healing process, right? We would also say to be born again is supernatural, would you? Right, so it would be supernatural for my mind to be renewed. It would be supernatural for my emotions to be grounded in Jesus, wouldn't it? It would be supernatural for me to actually um, uh, develop characteristically to where I am being much more pliable to God's will. Would that not be supernatural? Right. So when we talk about supernatural, don't play that down. Because what happens is in terms of the supernatural, what we're talking about is um, attesting to the fact that we have been in a very particular way, in a very dynamic way, changed. And that change is taking on a process. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, right? We all with open face are beholding as in the mirror of the word of God, God's glory. And that glory is interfacing with us. Is it interfacing with us? If it is interfacing with us, that is supernatural. 
There's nothing miraculous and overt and dynamic about that. It is as subtle as a soul being brought into existence in the womb of a woman. Do you understand that? Right. So so at the supernatural level, we can attribute a lot of characteristics of the believer to the supernatural. We can attribute, as I stated early, epiphany, revelation, the mind being opened up. Right. We can we can attribute uh, in the area of the supernatural the grace for us to hold our peace. You know, that's a miracle for some of us. But but what I what what I what I am saying with these things is that when you're talking about the supernatural, you're talking about a function of relationship with God that is continually transforming you at the more subtle and micro levels. And those are very important. What does God say? He says that he judges the heart. Right. He doesn't look on the outward appearance, but the Heart, the inner man, be renewed in your inward man. Those are all supernatural dynamics, which requires God's constant presence in your life. Like you're not doing that on your own. You're not doing that on your own. You're not sustaining faith on your own. That's supernatural. Does that make some sense? Right. And and so follow it like this, because it's going to show up explicitly. The word power is always associated with the presence of the spirit of God. Tarry ye here until you be endued on high with miracle. The power of the spirit of God. Does that make some sense? Right. Because it's the spirit of God that's giving you the gifts. It's the spirit of God that on Pentecost brought about that manifestation of those multiple languages among 17 nations that really wrestled with how are we hearing all these Galileans speaking in our own tongues? Right. You see that. And now what that does is it sets them up because of a crisis in their soul for clarification of where this is coming from. The second person sent the third person down. The second person is ruling. That's how the book of Acts opens up. It's the kingdom of God attacking the kingdom of men. And that clash is on even now as you and as you and I, as you and I speak. And I guess I would argue that um, more importantly in your impact in other people's lives is not that you would ask God to do a miracle through you for somebody as much as you would ask God to continue working supernaturally on you so that you can be a benefit to other people around you. Does that make sense? Right. So concerning, um, how can I frame the difficulty going on in the Middle East? At At the highest level, it's contrived. It's controlled by powers that are moving towards a global Um, a global uh, control over all of humanity. You have to know that. Um, And it's and it's working through a dialectical process that I've taught our church many years ago. Theses versus antitheses. That's called politics. This is why I keep telling you Be careful that you don't slip into politics. Understand politics from a bird's eye view. Understand it from a biblical view. 
So um, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 is where you start with the 10 horns giving their power unto the beast for one hour. This is prophetically where we're headed. 10 horns, the number of completion, it's the idea of all of the known powers coming together when in general, the known powers are at each other's throats. Now, we're not there where the known powers are unanimously consenting fully with each other. Are y'all keeping up with me? I'm just going to talk this through a little bit. We're not there yet. We're not there yet, but we will, we will be. So it's, it's going to be Revelation 17, 12 through 14, but we will be there because you can see a divide of the nations right now. The East versus the West. You've got your bigger players working uh, working in the East against the players in the West. That too is part of your dialectic. This is Hegel's thesis for progress. Hegel's thesis of progress is that you have an original premise. That's a position, a worldview, a system, an ideology, a political position. And then you have something that opposes that, that shows up and they go to war. This is called Marxist conflict narrative. Y'all keeping up with me? All right. So now you got the Hatfields and the McCoys. Now you got the West versus the East. Now you got the liberals versus the conservatives, the Democrats versus the Republicans. Now you've got the left versus the right in all of the general principles. Now you've got the uh, false church versus the true church, whatever that is today. Now you've got the battle between the man and the woman. Now that's your feminism. That's a dialectic. Now you've got heterosexuality against homosexuality. That's a dialectic. Now you got children against parents. That's a dialectic. That's a conflict theory. Y'all, got, y'all keeping up with me? Now you got human beings versus synthetic artificial intelligence, androgynous manifestation. That's a dialectic. Y'all keeping up? That's a dialectic. And all of these have operated sequentially through a progression of time unto where we are. You want me to keep talking? Right, because you should be able to frame these. So your Bible, which is, is a wonderful book, God shows up in the beginning with no rivals. That is what we would call our original and proper model. But he tells you there is a rival and that rival wants to create a dialectical conflict. The rival, as you're going to learn on Sunday, is a snake. And what he does is he starts with the two representatives of God's Imago Day, the man and the woman. And from there, these conflict narratives have grown. Haven't I taught us this forever? And all you have to do is map them onto society and you can see every day a conflict narrative. Now, those conflict narratives, we can put them in a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a machine where you can just buy whatever conflict narrative you want like candy or soda or whatever. Y'all got that, that image? So people, because they have identity crisis, will go and look, give me something on women. And now you have a conflict narrative around women, pro-women, anti-men. You got that? Oh, give me something on, on you know, gender. Now you got a conflict narrative, you know, gender 
uh, free gender, you know, malleable gender fluid, gender this, gender that, and, and gender queer, right? You got a whole what is called identity politic structure there. You can hit that button and now you can go into conflict with all kind of people in that category. All of this is called politics. While people are pushing buttons to actually get some kind of conflict narrative to make themselves feel like they're something, they're actually being distracted by the larger powers that are controlling all that. And you get it in the church. So like even the categories I've just shared with you, they're freely functioning in your churches. The category of black and white. I feel like I've been losing that battle here at Grace for 25 years trying to ask, you know, black people to actually rise above your blackness and think broadly, more broadly, because you're constantly being fed by the same liars that are creating a conflict narrative between the Palestinians and the Jews to tell you that white people need to be in hell. They're the scum of the earth. They're they're morons. These are psychological war tactics. It's the same stuff that the Jews are doing with the Palestinians and the Palestinians are doing with the Jews. They're trapped by politics. Does anybody see what I'm saying? They're trapped by politics. They're trapped by politics and they're going to be the model for you to watch. So God allowed it to be shrunk down to right now, this particular domain, this particular theater of conflict. Everybody gets to watch how the Jews deal with the Palestinians and vice versa. Y'all keep it up with me, but back up. Make sure you don't choose sides because if you do, you just bought into a conflict narrative and you missed the big picture. You missed the big picture. All right, control your emotions and watch what's going on and make sure as you are watching, ask yourself, who's talking to me? Because if you're listening to the neoprobative orifice, the media, they're framing it in ways that are not telling you the truth. Did you hear what I just stated? And here's how you know the devil is working. After the media has done its maniacal, deceptive, diabolical work of framing things and giving you pictures and setting the screen right and giving you the images. I told you that two Sundays ago, did I not? You're watching it and you're going, that must be the truth. In all likelihood, it's not. Because we know from the past it has not been the truth. So why is it the truth now? Are you hearing me? So the question you have to ask yourself is, when you watch that T-Lie vision, when you watch it, do you just jump right inside the metaverse and lose the framing and therefore lose your objectivity? Like, so your job, whenever you are watching something on your computer, your phone or TV, is to stand back and make sure it doesn't enter you in order to retain you, because that is entertainment. It will enter you and retain you and take you inside and you lose the frame. Now you are in the drama. And now you can't even find the parameters that constitutes the difference between the propaganda and the facts. Because you're sucked in psychologically, sucked in emotionally, sucked in in terms of, you know, biases and bents and prejudices and how you feel. I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? Right. It's important for you to know that that's what's going on. And when God gives you grace to be able to step back 
and actually not choose anybody's side and do what the Bible tells you to do, prove everything. That's what the Bible says. See, this is what I, we're back at the days of COVID. Before COVID, I told you to do that when it was Obama's election. I told you to do that when it was Clinton election. I told you to do that with Trump. I told you to do that with Bush. They're all working unwittingly in categories of conflict narratives. All of them are working unwittingly. Some of them know what they're doing. Some of them don't. While the whole thing is moving towards a unitarian position of total global governance over humanity. All right, so I send little signals out to you. You got Mr. Mr. Biden over there right now. He's the best man to be there because he's played both sides against the middle from the beginning. And y'all don't know that. He's the best man to be there because he lies pathologically. Like he don't even flinch when he lies. <laughs> At least Trump, when Trump lies, he gets braggadocious about, braggadocious about, and I know he's lying. When Biden lies, he just flies out of his mouth and, you know, sometimes he starts levitating and, and, and then he's wondering what's going on. Right. No, this here, this here is these are little signals that that cognitive disconnect. When you lie so much, it shows up in your life physiologically. And then he's trying to find a way out after just having lied. You, you can watch and you go, see, he, he just. He told another bold-faced lie. They're going to correct this in about five minutes. All of that. But see, he's confident that 60% of people are going to buy it indiscriminately without checking it out. And all I'm saying to the saints at Grace and everybody that listens to me, listen, your Bible is truer than you can ever imagine. Your Bible is truer than you can ever imagine. All men are liars. Right. All men are liars. Right. The Lord is sending a strong delusion that men should believe a lie. This is what we're getting ready to get into in the end of the study on miracles, because the the issue of miracles here, mighty workings closes out in the Bible eschatologically with the one that's actually doing mighty workings is the devil himself. So your eschatological trajectory going forward are mighty works done by the devil at such a level that even the undiscerning elect will be swallowed up by it. You guys know that now. Some of you are God's elect and you got hit by that lying sign and wonder three years ago that just that nice move packaged narrative of a COVID, right? Got hit and then we had to recover our equilibrium and okay, God restored some people and yet some people are still very wounded by it. Very wounded. And so what, I, what I'm sharing with you here is that we're heading into some really bad times by design. And I be, I'm, I'm often thinking like this, I'm thinking, you know, I remember the words of Isaiah. And then I remember the words of Jeremiah. The words of Isaiah are woe to you who call good evil and evil good. And, and, and Isaiah was 200 years out from the destruction of Israel, the scattering. And Jeremiah came along and Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 531, 
The prophets constantly prophesy falsely. That's your media. That's all your news outlet. That's your gatekeepers. And your priests bear rule by their own means. That, that's your religious institution that's supposed to bring you to Christ for healing. But they're doing their own methods. And then that third category there, Jeremiah 531, I haven't quoted in a long time. Is it up there? So ain't nobody helping me. All right. Jeremiah 531, five, uh, 531. So she'll catch up. That's Isaiah. Anyhow, um, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So um, you, you, when, the, when, the, when the text pops up, what you get are three categories. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their own means. And here is the public. And my people love to have it so. That becomes the wearisomeness of trying to warn people and teach people don't love to have it so. Don't lo- just because that's the norm doesn't mean you have to love it. Am I making some sense? Right. And so uh, but the task going forward from what we understand by the uh, the weather report of Scripture is that things are going to get more difficult. So what Daniel said in the captivity, Jeremiah said it was coming. Jeremiah watched it coming. Daniel lived in it. Isaiah said it was coming. They killed him before it came. They cut him in half, sawed him in half. That's the prophet. Then they garnished his sepulcher. We love us some Isaiah. And then Jeremiah came along and Jeremiah wept all his ministry because he said it. I hearkened, I heard, and no one was speaking right. No one was declaring truth. They were all doing their own thing. And then this is what you're going to hear on Sunday. This is what you're going to hear on Sunday. Raise the banner. Raise the banner. Raise the banner. There are two banners up. Raise the banner because the banner is a warning that the enemy is coming. And so Jeremiah says, the banner is up. Do you not? Do you not see? Can you not see the banners? That's the enemy. When the enemy comes confidently, what is he riding with? Banners. He's riding with his ensigns. The ensigns are the first thing you see. This is why Jesus says, when you see the eagles flying, know that the time is near. Israel understood that that was the ensign of the Roman Empire. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Right. Eagles and lions and bears and leopards. Those were all ensigns. Because countries use ensigns to kind of indicate their power and dominion. And what Jesus told the disciples were, if by the time you see the eagles, it's too late. They're already encompassing you about. Because you missed the signals. You missed the tokens. And, uh, So you're looking at Israel. I got one minute. You're looking at Israel. Um, Depending on how this outcome occurs, you're going to see exactly the same thing in America. Exactly the same thing. I told you, Jim, I told you Ezekiel chapter 16 through 22, Judah and Jerusalem. Right. A whole lot and a whole lip. Right. Judah and Jerusalem, they're sisters. The same abominations. America and Israel carry the same behavior patterns, privileges and 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 rank disobedience against God. Did that make some sense? Right. They reinforce each other. They they support each other. Okay, so it's it's important for you to know and you hear it in the rhetoric and you need to you need to be able to distinguish between the true Jews and the false Jews even over there. This is important. 
And then you need to actually be able to know, do I listen to news that's only coming to me from America? Or do I get to hear news on the ground in the places where these things are taking place so I can hear people on the ground? I want to hear. I want to see their faces. I want to hear what they say. I want to understand their struggle. I want to understand their challenges. I want all the parties in that arena to be heard. I want to hear them. This is how you hear the whole matter. And then you can make an advised conclusion. Am I making some sense? Right, right. Right. Because a a few months ago, we were almost falling into the trap of uh, the homosexual thing just because Uganda said death penalty to the homosexuals. You guys remember that? I said, stop it. And the reason why is because that whole thing was much more complex than the media was letting out to be. And once you go behind the scenes and understand that what Uganda had laid out was a set of measures. And then when you hear those measures, you go, that's just. But the way your lefty Pravda news media laid it out is that Uganda was saying, just go around and kill homosexuals. That narrative taken up in your mouth and mind would make you and I bearing false witness. And that again is the Proverbs. He that speaks before he heareth the matter, it is folly and shame to him. Does that make some sense? Ladies and gentlemen, does that make sense? Yes. Right. And this is so. So what we have to be careful here at Grace to be able to do is have enough personal self-deportment to go, OK, I hear you. Let me go check that out. And I may not even be able to get to it right now because everything everybody is saying is not worthy of you stopping and just dealing with it. And I'm going to put this on the list. And if I get to it this year, maybe fine. If not, I, if I don't get to it till next year, I don't get to it. Does that make some sense? Right, because we all have to know how to prioritize what God is calling us to. You have to know that. You have to know you have, you can be distracted by good things because you don't know how to prioritize what God is calling you to. Now, all of a sudden, you're doing all this other stuff that other people want you to do rather than you doing what God wants you to do. See what I'm getting at? Um, I'm going to answer that question because she's sincere. My my dear sister asks, what about climate and UFOs? So, well, they are all part of the same um, multifaceted disorientation propaganda piece. So stay with me on that. I appreciate her because some of us don't have really healthy boundaries when it comes to doing research and and dealing with data. Are you guys listening to me? So the CIA calls this a flood. This goes way back to World War I. In every war throughout all time, propaganda is absolutely essential to misdirect your adversary before you attack them. That's what the snake did. I'm going to talk about it Sunday. His goal was to misdirect you from the tree of life. And now all of a sudden, oh, this is the most important thing in my life. No, God didn't say that tree was the most important thing. There you go. Propagandize. Am I making some sense? Right. And so 
wars have been going on from the beginning of time since the snake. You have never lived at a time where there wasn't war on the earth. There's been war somewhere on the planet all of our days, have they not? And we have been financing most of them, if not directly involved. Right? And so the fog of war is how the enemy actually distracts and divides the fog of war. COVID was a major fog of war that distracted and divided. Right now, the things that are going on in the Middle East, in Africa, in Russia, in China, in, in the UK, and here in America, these are all fogs of war. These are, all of these are different theaters of distracting conflict that can be summed up in the way your media talks about them. While behind the scenes and above the scenes, everything is a collaboration of the major powers that be. Your bigger countries don't ever allow a war to take place where they haven't behind the scenes agreed on the terms. Your bigger powers have never ever because we think about it, saints, I should stop. Our economics are tied. Our regions are therefore tied together at the economic levels. Okay, and so when we go to war with a country, we behind the scenes, we're still doing business economically with different resources. And we're pretending up front like we got a real problem with them. No, Hamas and Israel both getting paid right now by the same people, Biden and Netanyahu. So why are they letting the people up front and the visible be torn to shreds like they do? Because the elite do not view you and I as anything in terms of humans. And you become dangerous to them once you can see them for what they are. Did you hear what I just stated? And and, and I'm talking about the greatest whore besides the churches is your media. Because they are relentlessly pulling the wool over your eyes, keeping you distracted, keeping you going down rabbit holes. And never, ever coming back. You know what? We lied about all them babies. They, they don't come back and straighten that out so they can win. Fauci hasn't straightened it out. The CDC hasn't straightened it out. The FDA... This, this is what we call, now Plato said it, when you come into open conspiracy, the, the part of society when the conspiracy is wide open, where everybody can see it, then he knows that you're just about done. You're just about completely captivated because as I shared with you on my Monday show and I shared with you last Friday, the government doesn't care that you know because it knows that you don't care enough. Does that make sense? That's what was going on with Israel when you had this Hollywood display of a multifaceted attack as if it was a James Bond movie. I mean, this was a phenomenal display. Only James Bond is riding motorcycles with with helicopters on it and hang gliders. And I mean, that's a James Bond movie. Did y'all get that? And it worked. 
That's a James Bond movie. It wasn't for them. It was for us. It's for us to keep us inordinately fixed on that kind of stuff and being uncritical in our judgment of what's happening. We like the optics because we like movies. That's corruption of the heart. We don't really care about how many babies was killed over there. The news was flaring up. They killed all them babies. Oh, they killed all them babies. Stop. We kill way more than that every year in America. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. And Americans are hypocrite when we go to argue with each other over that. The contradictions are so clear, aren't they? This is what should break us and humble us. The contradictions are so clear. We're mad people. We are angry people. We are corrupt people. We are sinful people. That's what we are. Vile by nature. Right. More to come. Mm -mm. Y'all stand with me for prayer. We need healing, Lord. We need healing. And we do need you to not abandon us. We need your constant presence supernaturally. And should you do the miraculous, help us to discern that it's you and not the wicked one. And um, help us to walk humbly with you and discerningly with one another and caring. Um, Help us to keep our feet on the ground. Um, Lord, um, give us traveling mercies as we go now. Prepare us for Sunday, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.